Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of The Edric Show. I am your host, Edric Jerome. This is the place for intelligent conversation with interesting people. Go ahead and hit that subscribe button. Go ahead and ring that notification bell. You will get notified when I post content each and every week. Uh, I am joined today by a very distinguished guest, Dr. Steve Cohn. He is author of the new book, All Bleeding Stops, Life and Death in the Trauma Unit, which offers an intimate look at what goes on inside a trauma center. Dr. Cohn is a former surgeon in United States Army Medical Corps in Desert Storm. He's past division chief of trauma and surgical critical care at Yale University School of Medicine and past chairman of the Department of Surgery at the University of Texas Health Science Center. He is currently practicing in New York City. He's an educator, a researcher, and has served as an editorial reviewer for numerous medical journals. Dr. Cohn has also received Teacher of the Year awards at Boston University, University of Massachusetts, Yale, and Northwell Health. Dr. Cohn, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Nice to, uh, it's a pleasure to be here, Edric. Likewise, likewise. Let's get into it. So um, first question is a little more introspective. Uh, I imagine dealing uh, with the stress and pressures of being a trauma surgeon with the amount of experience you've had over the number of years you've done it uh, was quite difficult. So was there any reluctance um, on your part to relieve or to relive some of those experiences you've had in order to write your book? I mean, was it stressful to go back and revisit some of these, these situations or was that just something you wanted to share when you wrote your book? No, I, it, it was not stressful. Uh, uh, surgeons, particularly trauma surgeons, tend to be pretty stress resistant, as we say. And in any case, I guess we sort of gravitate to that area be, because of our sort of... Uh, uh, calmness, but um, I actually have been using these stories to uh, illuminate my residents and my students for, you know, four decades. And, um, you know, I find it's, it's uh, helpful to, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> excuse me, uh, to underscore important teaching points uh, or to explain the negative consequences of, of not following a particular um, uh, protocol by uh, using stories. So um, when it came to writing these stories, uh, they sort of sort of rolled out of my head um, uh, in a very natural way. And the challenge was uh, trying to make them understandable to the general public. Uh, you mentioned writing for your, or for your students and, and sharing with them, but what was your primary motivation for writing the book? Was it students or was it for a more general audience? Oh, no. So the book was written for the general audience. But my stories I, I've collected over the years, it just is a natural way of trying to make things understandable to trainees. <laughs> what made you decide to write the book? Well, for so many years, people have been asking me, what it is it? what is it exactly that a trauma surgeon does? You know, like, what, what do I even do with my day? And um, my wife uh, suggested during a little bit of downtime, I should uh, put some of these stories down on paper. And the interesting thing was, as I, I sat down to write one story, I'd think of three other ones and I'd make a little list. And eventually I, I, I caught up, finished going through the whole list and it, it was a book. It was really quite um, natural. Um, you alluded to it earlier, but one of the things you write in your book is that trauma surgeons uh, are not great, quote unquote, feelers. Uh, can you say more about that? Well, I, I think 
you know, we're tasked with dealing with a lot of calamity all sort of the same time. And I think if you get too emotionally involved in, let's say, the first patient and they have a poor outcome, not related to anything you did necessarily, but uh, that they're just badly hurt and they have a bad outcome, if, if you are uh, paralyzed by that uh, encounter, then you're not able to take care of the next one or the one that follows that. So we tend to have a small rear view mirror. We tend to try to keep things very professional. Remember, uh, trauma is about team effort. So we are sort of like the quarterback on an NFL team where we are busy distributing and engaging, making sure the right people are engaged. There are, uh, you know, high quality nursing staff, respiratory therapists, radiology, techs, our anesthesiologists are essential. We have all these different people that we're collaborating with, including ER doctors in some cases, um, that make uh, us the smooth running of, of, uh, of the trauma resuscitation and, and the care of the trauma patient. So we have to remain calm uh, so that those around us uh, take their cues from us and, and uh, uh, also stay you know, uh, anxiety-free. Um, one of the things that surprised me when I read your book is that uh, there's no official trauma fellowship and no board certification in trauma surgery. That, that really surprised me. Can you speak a little bit more about that? Sure. So after, you know, most people do four years of medical school and then in general surgery, we do five years of residency typically. Uh, at the end of those years of residency, uh, where and there's quite a bit of trauma and critical care and general surgery in our general surgical residency, those people that want to do trauma per se, the fellowship is called a surgical critical care fellowship. I'm not exactly sure how that came to be because it was long ago, but um, in the 80s, um, they created this fellowship. And from that uh, evolved sort of the trauma care because the trauma surgeons are critical care folks. They take care of the critically ill, whether it's in the trauma center or anywhere in the hospital and certainly in this surgical intensive care unit. So that just happens to be the pathway now. Um, and there's quite a bit of trauma in these institutions that have surgical critical care fellowships. Um, what are some of the characteristics of, of a surgeon who, who goes into trauma? Are there some unique uh, qualities that those types of surgeons possess in order to be able to do this work as opposed to other areas of surgery? I'm not sure they have unique qualities. I think it's more just like uh, uh, their particular area of interest. Um, they're very similar in terms of the, uh, the fact that the patients are very ill, uh, similar to say a transplant surgeon, but the transplant surgeons have an interest in immune, immune function and in that particular kind of operation. Uh, so we're both taking care of very sick people, but it's, it's different. So it kind of, you know, as a resident, you figure out what it is that you find very attractive in terms of your practice or your lifestyle, or, um, you know, what do you like to read about? Uh, do you find the research in, in trauma more interesting than the research in say cancer? So general surgeons overall probably have a little bit of a different personality than say a neurologist. Um, you know, uh, they're, they're built a little bit different than a general medical doctor. But that's, again, that's 
I'm not sure if that's we are trained to be different or that people of certain personality types go into different fields. Do you think your career in the military uh, kind of laid the groundwork or helped you make this transition to a trauma surgeon? Uh, it, it certainly does in some people. In my case, I went, I did my military time after I was already a trauma surgeon. Oh, I see. Gotcha. So, so, so I joined in uh, during my first faculty position. Most of my senior faculty were all ex-military. And my father had been a medic in the, in the Navy in World War II. And I, and I had other military folks in my family and, uh, put, you know, who had been in the past in the military. And I thought, you know, I should give back. I, I had an opportunity. So I decided I would go teach trauma as a general surgeon in the military. I didn't expect that 18 months later, they would activate every general surgeon in the army. Uh, and um, but so I certainly learned a lot from the experience. And actually, I carried that on. Uh, when I went down to Miami, we started the Army Trauma Training Center where all the forward surgical teams that went to Iraq and Afghanistan came in and trained before they were deployed. And then when I went down to San Antonio, I uh, worked with uh, one of my former fellows who was the chief of, uh, of the, something called the ISR, which, which is the Institute of Surgical Research, where's, which is where they do all the um, combat casualty research in the Department of Defense. So I stayed involved and uh, it was a very good experience for me, um, but it didn't make me become a trauma surgeon. <laughs> um, you show example after example of some of the types of injuries that uh, the horrific injuries that people sustain uh, that, of course, you know, necessitate, necessitate trauma surgery and that type of care. Um, at the end of the day, though, it's really about people. And so not only were you managing your team in the surgical unit, but you write about at times when you go out and actually have to talk to families and things in that situation. Um, how did you balance that? Because you go from an environment where it's just horrific, and then you have to take that out and, and kind of explain it to laypersons, especially when they're so concerned about their families. Yeah, it's, you bring up a very um, challenging part of the job. Uh, the fact is that uh, unlike the, the when you want to get your hernia fixed and you go see a surgeon and you have a relationship and uh, you are prepared for what's going to happen, people, when they roll over their car, they don't get to choose who their surgeon's going to be. They, they just wake up in a trauma center on a ventilator or, you know, uh, uh, with tubes in them or having had surgery. So uh, often we're not uh, having an interaction initially with the patient who's very badly hurt, but rather with the family. And of course, likewise, the family doesn't know who you are. You're just some guy in a set of scrubs or a white jacket who is, is telling them about how badly damaged uh, their loved one is, and they're really not prepared for it. So it, um, it, it's a very difficult interaction. And of course, we try to do our best to make it understandable what's going on and what's happened. Many times we don't even know what's happened. Uh, a patient just rolls into us, um, you know, under a under a sheet, all busted up. We have no idea what their injuries are, and um, we have to spend some time trying to identify all the injuries and what the magnitude of the injury is, and and then we have to try to prognosticate. Meaning, we have to try to predict that this person with this 
ruptured spleen that we had to take out and a bad head injury, whether or not they're going to ever wake up. Um, so the families are naturally um, quite upset and um, they're distrustful in general of the medical environment because they've all heard about bad things happening. So we have what I always call the trust Olympics hmm. and we don't always do the best job because there's lots of different providers and when the families feel they're hearing different information from different people, then they say, no, nobody knows what this, what they're doing here. You know, uh, when in fact, that's not the case. It's just, uh, it's a, it, it's a constantly changing environment. And what someone told you two hours ago may have changed now. So uh, one of the purposes of the book was to make people understand what we do and what some of the challenges are for us uh, in, in, in the care of people who uh, are very sick. Um, you've seen all types of injuries, but uh, some of the types of injuries that you really focus on are gunshot injuries and gun violence. Um, as a trauma surgeon, and you've seen your fair share, uh, what can you say about the situation we find ourselves in with gun violence in the United States? Well, that is a controversial topic, obviously. Uh, um, there are a number of interesting pieces of information about gun violence that the public in general is not aware of. Um, one of the key things is that those of us who deal with this on a day-to-day -day basis and see a lot of people with holes in them, we see that they're much more severely injured. Uh, a gun is much more lethal than say a knife or a fist. And so the severity of injury is much greater. The population that is injured by gun violence is sort of uh, bimodal. Um, there are uh, many young uh, persons of color that are injured by gun violence in the inner cities. And there are very, and there are many older Caucasian men typically that use the guns to commit suicide. And it's almost 50, 50 uh, in countries where there is our strict gun laws or where they have put in strict gun laws, they don't see this kind of thing. And uh, most of the public doesn't realize that in 1996, there was this horrific, uh, you know, shooting and ki multiple killings at a school in, in Australia, Tasmania and Australia. And the response of the Australians were to put in gun buyback programs and try to control guns. And they, for the next 20 years had not a single mass shooting. They saw a decrease in both homicide and suicide, both of which stayed very low for the next 20 years. Uh, at the same point in the United States, the response was a little different. In the United States, there was a bill that went through or a regulation that went through, which prohibited um, this. Well, first of all, it cut funding to the CDC for their gun center. And it prohibited research on gun violence in the United States. So if you were at Johns Hopkins and you wanted to do a research project, they, it would they, basically they would threaten. They, it was a threat that they would remove all the federal funding from your institution. So for the next 20, 25 years, there were there is not any research, any meaningful information in the United States on whether or not um, having high velocity weapons causes more injuries, whether or not having assault rifles is bad, whether or not having high, 
you know, magazines with large number of bullets in them. And, and as you are aware, I think we're up to over 700 mass shootings, in, mass shootings, let alone all the single shootings, mass shootings in the United States this year, which is, you know, we're on record pace. Um, so, you know, my feeling is that we need information uh, and we need to be smart about it uh, because we are way, way ahead of the rest of the developed world in terms of gun violence. And uh, it's a horrendous problem. Uh, we have a few minutes left. Uh, so I have just a couple more questions for you. One is, um, what are some of the most uh, telling misconceptions that people may have about trauma surgeons, particularly in an environment where we pretty much see a lot of stuff on TV and in the movies, which may or not, may or not be realistic, but what are some of the misconceptions that people have that you think about trauma surgeons? Right. I think people think that it's a very excited and uh, animated environment, which it's not. In fact, the sicker the patients are, the quieter it needs to be so that everybody can do their job and think clearly. Um, so while I understand that for entertainment purposes, you have to make it all dramatic and people screaming and yelling and flailing about, uh, that's just not the way that we like to run it. In, in the operating room and in the resuscitation area down in the emergency center, we, we just have to be calm. And remember, sometimes this is a car that rolled over with three people in it. So you have three traumas going on. Um, we actually had, a, as an example, I had a van um, roll over uh, and be brought into one hospital, broad daylight, coming back from the beach. Uh, and they had, you know, four injured kids and mom and dad were all severely injured. So we had six injured people at the same time. This is not a massive number, but it was large for that trauma center. And we basically had six different individual resuscitations going out of different rooms all within the emergency the trauma area. And each one of those, everybody had to keep their voice down, keep calm so that otherwise, otherwise something bad was going to happen. Sometimes, you know, the worse it is, the more calm everybody has to be. Um, the other, other things are that, that, you know, that, you know, we go fishing around for projectiles, like, you know, stick a pair of forceps down into a hole, raunch around for a while and pull a bullet out. Uh, nobody does that. You know, we rarely remove a bullet unless it's in a pulsating blood vessel or sitting there in the wide in the open. So uh, those are some silly examples. But, you no, know, you know, TV kind of makes it very dramatic. And it, it, unfortunately, it's it's not that dramatic. Um, as we get ready to wrap up here, just on a personal note, um, you've had a lifetime of experience. You've seen a lot, uh, a lot of trauma and surgeries. But over these years, what did you do to, to get away from it? Outside of writing, what did you do for fun? What hobbies did you did kind of decompress uh, in? <laughs> sure. So I, I, most of my trauma surgeon friends, they, they have a lot of different outside pursuits. It's important to decompress. So I play the drums in a band. We play a lot of funk. Uh, I do a lot of sports. Uh, and uh, uh, so exercise is, is key and, and uh uh, those two things, and I, and I enjoy photography. I do a lot of things with my family, and um, so. But you, you have to have uh, uh, pursuits outside of the uh, outside of the field. Otherwise, it, it can be oppressive for sure. Uh, I, I got to jump in because uh, I love music, and you mentioned funk. 
who are some of your influences? Who who are who do you model your style over? Who do you like to listen to in the funk world? I have a really wide, wide uh, palette. I, I I mean, our, our band we play everything from the Red Hot Chili Peppers to Sly and the Family Stone to uh, the Weekend. Uh, I mean, we're we're all over the place, and uh, it's it's definitely one of my loves is playing music. No question about it. Nice, nice. Uh, well, Dr. Cohen, uh, I want to thank you so much for for coming on the Edric Show. Uh, if people want more information about you or they want to get the book, uh, where can they go? They can go to Amazon or Barnes & Noble. I, I, hopefully it'll be in your bookstores, but I know it's in those places. Very well, very well. Well, thank you so much, Dr. St Steve Cohn. I'm struggling with that. Dr. Steve Cohn, author of the new book, All Bleeding Stops, Life and Death in the Trauma Unit which offers an intimate look at what goes on inside a trauma center. It is a great read. Be sure and go pick it up. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Edric, and have a happy holiday. You too. This has been another edition of The Edric Show. I am your host, Edric Jerome. As promised, this is the place for intelligent conversation with interesting people. Go ahead and hit that subscribe button. Go ahead and ring that notification bell, and you will get notified of this content each and every week. I want to thank you for tuning in, and I will catch you on the next episode.